Hello and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast, the podcast where we discuss a variety of justice-related issues affecting the world over a cup of coffee. Continuing with my coronavirus calls. No, that's not a great title, is it? Scrap that. Continuing with my internet calls to friends, old and new, in the justice world during the coronavirus lockdown. This week, I got the chance to speak with Special Agent Alani Bankhead from the State Attorney General's Office of Hawaii. Alani is part of a team that investigates internet-facilitated child sexual abuse cases. And we're going to be talking about some of her work on this podcast. So on that note, I would like to give a bit of a warning that some of the content of this discussion may prove upsetting or distressing to hear. So please bear that in mind when listening. You may wish to choose a time and a place when you can listen to this one in private. I'm particularly excited for you to hear from Alani. She is one of my very favourite people. Not only was she once my boss, but she was also a pivotal part of the creation of Blue Bear Coffee Co., the producer of this podcast. In that, besides being a special agent, ex-bodyguard, ex-terrorist hunter, Alani is a life coach and has been an invaluable help to me and my scattered brain in the early days of setting up the business. So I can't say enough good things about her. But why don't I stop talking and I'll let you get to know her for yourself. Here's Alani. Alani, mahalo and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. <laughs> Bryn, aloha, how are you? Right, have I said the right term there? Is it mahalo or aloha? It's aloha, mahalo is actually thank you, but a forever. Oh, <laughs> it's so great to finally get you on the show. It's I honestly can't believe it's taken a global health pandemic for you and I to actually sit down and do this. We've been talking about it for a while, but how are things how are things going for you during this time over there in Hawaii? Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. This has been a long time coming and it's been really cool just watching Blue Bear grow and listening to the podcast and stuff. So I'm really grateful that we get to chat today. But you've heard you've heard the podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. I was never convinced you've been listening to it. Yeah, of course I listen to it. I mean, <laughs> we, like, I mean, we've been talking about this since, gosh, has it been a year since That's you started the podcast? Yeah. I feel like it's been. Well, the podcast started in September, but, yeah, obviously you were, you were. Oh, we were, you know, right we were talking about planning and stuff. Right? That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. So, so yeah, and, and all of your guest roles and. You had that one uh, on that Christian, it was like three hosts, I forget what it was called, too. Well, when I was on, I guess. Yeah, on, when you were on. Oh, gosh, no one wants to hear about that. Oh, whatever. How are you doing? Yeah, How no, are things under the, the global health pandemic in Hawaii? Yeah, things are um, kind of flattening out finally, thank goodness. But um, yeah, it's kind of crazy living in the middle of a pandemic, but um yeah, we're all kind of taking a breather, but I think because we're an island, things are a little isolated. Yeah, so um, so I don't think we've fared as as bad as some other spots. But yeah, we're we're doing okay. So how about you guys? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough over here in the UK. We're sort of approaching a spike here, or um, what we expect to and hope to be sort of the worst stages of it. So it's it's really hard. It's um, watching the news every evening is could be quite quite distressing but there's also been this amazing um sort of coalescing of community people coming together to support one another and volunteer and do food shops for vulnerable people or elderly people and every thursday night in the uk at the moment we're encouraged to go outside our front door and uh, clap uh, or bang bang our pans or make some noise and whistle and holler for for the carers and for the key workers that are still serving and last night it was thursday night and i went outside and started applauding and watching all people sort of come out their front doors do the same it's really quite a special experience so there's beauty um but there's also suffering and it's it's yeah it's quite extraordinary certainly beyond my ability to articulate particularly acutely yeah no that's so crazy and yeah, it, it has been crazy to see the circumstances that we're living under. But I agree, it's been 
very beautiful seeing how humanity has come together and how we encourage each other and just, you know, taking a pause, right. To reflect on mm-hmm. what's most important in our lives. And well, that well, that's also given us the opportunity to do this. I've been meaning to have this conversation with you and record it for a long time. So I'm really excited. And I know that like my energy levels, right. You talk to me about my energy levels. My energy levels are always up. Yeah. After you and I have had a have a conversation, but it's it's evening here, so I'm getting towards half past seven at night. You're sort of starting your day in Hawaii, right? Yes, it's eight thirty in the morning here, and I am drinking decaf, obviously blue bear coffee, but decaf. Are you have you armed yourself with something stronger this morning? Oh, absolutely. I have my local Hawaiian blend, and it's my super frou frou chocolate macadamia. Uh, brew and it's absolutely fabulous <laughs> are you are you a big coffee drinker alani i'm gonna think you probably are oh my gosh i am a massive coffee drinker actually i didn't realize until we started talking about this podcast how important coffee was to my life so so yes we drink a lot of coffee in this house that is what i like to hear i'm amazed it wasn't until this podcast began that i realized just how many people don't can you believe it but what yeah easy got to be gracious and forgive them regardless i (laughs) want to take this time this morning for you this evening for me learn a bit about alani and and your experiences in the world of of fighting injustice and fighting for justice um but i wanted to start by asking you know where did this journey begin for you how how far back does it go Oh, man. Yeah. So I think my journey with justice started, I mean, before I was born, I grew up in a military house. So my dad was a military police officer and the U.S. Army. And I grew up living all over the world and um, just from a very young age, always was drawn to leadership type topics and hated seeing injustice. And so um I remember living in Colombia. So my dad was stationed at the embassy down there. And um, that was in the middle of the Pablo Escobar time frame. And just seeing what a beautiful culture Colombia was, but how ravaged it was by cocaine um, and that whole economy just really took me to a place where I I knew like I I was going to be involved at the time in counter drug stuff, right? So everything I did, all my studies, everything was focused on getting back to Latin America so I could fight the drug war. Um, But of course, life has a funny way of zigzagging us. And so I ended up going to college and uh, doing ROTC, which is the the U.S.'s version of kind of the path to become a military officer, yeah, or one of one of the paths. And so, I did that. Uh, ended up joining the Air Force after college, uh, planning on being an intelligence officer, and then uh, you know life just kind of um, again intervened, and eventually ended up being a special agent with uh, what we call the Office of Special Investigations. So, if you are familiar with the TV show NCIS. It is the Air Force's version. Yes, I know. Everybody loves that show. Um, So, yeah, so I did the Air Force's version of that. And um, never in a million years would I have thought that I would be working felony level investigations. So, you know, it's like the FBI and the CIA and the DEA, like kind of all those agencies rolled into one. And so... um, So that was kind of a crazy path uh, with all the different places that I went. Um, I ended up... Oh, geez. I started my journey in Japan where we were hunting spies um, and then ended up in Iraq deploying with special operations and we were hunting terrorists there. So I was leaving the base to go meet with my informants who a lot of them were Al-Qaeda people and they were telling me where their bosses were and, you know, we were kind of collecting that information to give to special ops so they could go kill or capture them. Um, And then I ended up in Quantico after that, and I was in charge of our worldwide counterintelligence technology protection investigation. So just making sure. So Quantico, for people that aren't already aware, is the headquarters of the FBI, right? Um, It it is not the headquarters. It is the training academy for the FBI, yes. And so 
Um, there's a, a massive component of federal law enforcement that's there. And so um, OSI and actually NCIS's headquarters are, are out of Quantico as well. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was a blast, just uh, making sure that um, bad people weren't trying to steal our technology in that job. And then uh, from there, I, I went to Kuwait for a year where I was the commander of our unit out there working everything from sex assault cases to counterterrorism, counterintelligence. So that, that was a super wild ride. And then uh, ended up going to the Pentagon after that where I was the uh, what we call the personal security advisor or, you know, bodyguard, basically the close protection stuff. Yeah. Um, to the secretary of the air force, who's the the top air force official in our country. So, um, so yeah, so from there I ended up leaving service and I went and worked for an international nonprofit that, um, that's how we met right at international yeah. justice mission. And so I was, responsible for kind of oversight and support to our Latin American investigators, um, just helping them with their operations and training law enforcement and stuff like that. Um, that was a really incredible experience as well. Um, what an incredible team of people that we worked with. Um, and then from there ended up uh, moving out to Hawaii and I now work for the state attorney general's office investigating uh, internet facilitated child sex abuse cases. So yeah, it's been quite, quite a crazy career. I've had, what but. a career. Wow. Well, thank you for taking me on that roller coaster ride of your past endeavors. I wanted to know, like you mentioned the, the fact you grew up in a military household, but where did that, where was the first seed planted when you thought, actually, this is, this is something that gets gets my heart like nothing else man that's hard I think it was probably um probably watching uh that movie the newsies right so it's um Christian Bale's big first performance that he had and I want to say the movie came out in like 91 or 92 but I I was you know really young at the time and I just remembered watching the movie and so basically for those who haven't watched it it's all about um the newsboy strike in new york city so so these young orphaned kids who would sell papers on behalf of these multi-million dollar newspaper agencies and um the agencies were being greedy and trying to cheat these orphans out of money and so they they had this big strike uh so the news wasn't getting sold um or the papers weren't getting sold and so um, watching that movie, I was just really upset at the idea that someone would not only not treat an orphaned person well, but just take advantage of them uh, for, for financial gain. And that really upset me. And I remember my parents had to, I mean, it was like days we were talking about it and I convinced them to um, sponsor an orphan and, you know, just all this stuff. But I think that was really when I started understanding that I really hate bullies and I I hate it when people use their strength, whether it's physical or otherwise, to take advantage of, of more vulnerable populations. Yes, Alani, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Yes. It's funny you mentioned an early childhood film. It's it's true, right? I, I have memories of sitting there watching a movie and just feeling my heart race start to sort of get away from me and my blood start to boil at the injustice of whatever I'm watching. Actually, Julia, Julia Immonen, who was um, who was the first uh, guest we had on the podcast, she talks about her first real stirring into this issue was watching the film Taken. And she was like, uh -huh. huh, I don't like that. That makes me feel really angry. And she started to look into it from there. And I don't know. I don't know what mine would have been, but it wouldn't have been dissimilar. I've not seen the Newsies. I will have to I'll have to look it up. Um, I saw that it was a Disney movie, so yes, it would definitely be on my street. It's amazing. The soundtrack is sick. It's actually like kind of a musical. <laughs> so yeah, no, it, it's a, a wonderful movie. So I'll check it out in a, in a nice, broad, open question. Why do issues of injustice? Why do they matter to you? I mean, I think it's just that idea of you know, we're all humans and we're all just 
out here living our lives, trying to be the best versions of ourselves. And um, injustice to me symbolizes kind of the, I mean, you're really like stripping someone of their humanity, right? If you're not just treating them fairly. And and I'm not even saying like being over the top, like nice to them. But, but when we talk about a lot of these crimes, um, I mean, I, I can't fathom um, physically you know, attacking someone or penetrating someone because you're just really negating who they are and their inherent value. Um, and, and I just, you know, for me, I can't stand by and watch that happen. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And I think most people get it, but it's, it's great to see that you've dedicated your life to responding to it in some way. Yeah, I think, you know, that's the interesting thing, though, is, I love how everybody is so uniquely built, right? Like there are different passions that we all have. And I think it's just a matter of figuring out what your passion is, because once you have an understanding of what that is, you can't Mm -hmm. turn away from it. Right. And so, I mean, there are times on this journey that I'm burned out and tired and exhausted. um, But it's just such a strong kind of flame in your heart that you can't extinguish it, even if you really want to, you know, and so. So yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to get to do what I do. I, um, I, I love seeking justice on behalf of others. And when we get that justice and we can restore some of that dignity um, to that person, it's just the, the most incredible feeling. So has it been easy for you? Do you feel that this journey has been a, been a simple one? Oh my gosh, it's been so crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, the, the thing about working these types of issues is, it's really the pit of humanity, right? Like um, my specific charter with my current job is specific to child sex crimes. And so you're talking about people who were doing, I mean, unthinkable, disgusting things to kids and recording them and distributing them. And, you know, in some cases creating forums where people can share information on how to do more of that crime. And, um, it's really hard to be in that space just from a mental health standpoint, um, even psychologically, you know, I mean, we all know that we need to rest, but it's hard when you're resting and you're thinking like, wow, the crime is continuing. Right. And I'm not out there to, to get into the fight, but so, so it's always been really difficult, I think, for people in this field to, to take that break. Right. Because you're, you're in it cause you're passionate about it. Um, but even the, the most incredible investigators I've found usually burn out at about the two year mark. And I've definitely experienced that as well. I mean, um, I've kind of come in and out of this field as well because you just get to a point sometimes where you're like, I, I'm done. Like I've had enough, like, you know, and, and that's okay. Um, but yet here I am, pulled back in because um, our kids are just such important resources. And, and when you see the devastation that this type of abuse has on someone's psyche and their development, it's just soul crushing, you know? And so, um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really tough, but also really rewarding because we get to help just our most precious resources, right? Which is our kids. So yeah, I want to talk to you about that in a little bit more detail, if that's okay. But before before we go there, I just wonder, you, in answering the previous question, you mentioned you know, feeling burnt out and feeling a need to sort of pick your sandals up and move on to the next project. But as an individual, how do you feel an individual can make a difference? Oh, you know, it's so funny because when I was younger, I would hear you know, these public service announcements or whatever, where everybody's like, oh yeah, you as an individual, you can make an impact. And at the time I was like, I don't really think so. But, you know, being in this world uh, for as long as I have been, one person really can have a massive impact. I mean, I tell people all the time when we're doing public engagement, I would rather, you know, if you have, if, if your spidey sense is going off, Um, but you don't have any concrete proof, I would much rather you report it and me look into it and find nothing than for you to kind of, you know, shrug it off as, as nothing and, you know, potentially allow a child from, from being abused. And, you know, especially in this day and age, um, because we work with technology facilitated crimes, you know, the technology is always changing. 
Um, one of the things we see a lot is parents are super freaked out, right? Like they, they don't get the technology. Their kids are way more adept at using their cell phones than, than the parents are in a lot of cases. And, you know, that, that misunderstanding of the technology creates a, a paralysis in a lot of cases for the parents. And so, um, so just educating people on really basics of how to protect your kids online, um, if nothing else protects your child, right? But having that awareness of what that type of crime looks like um, can also change the life of a lot of people. I mean, I, I'm certain it changes the lives of a lot of people. So yeah, awareness is absolutely the most important thing anybody can do to help combat child sex abuse. So I can already imagine people hearing that the terminology child sex abuse or cyber sex trafficking or some of the other terms that go around and it's just there's an immediate sense of discomfort isn't there because it really is um such a dark topic such a awful place to go even just imagining it that it's much easier just to not go there you know let's just not talk about that that's not something to be um, right. considered let's not bring that up in conversation let's not dwell on that do you find it I mean how do you find it actually out of interest when you're communicating with non-cops um just members of your family or your community of friends like how do you deal how do you deal with your experiences and how do you sensitively share what you get up to yeah I mean everybody has their thresholds right and I think it's really important to respect that um, because it is a really horrible topic to discuss and um, a, a lot of people really can't handle it. And I completely understand that. And I mean, usually when we engage the public, um, I mean, obviously we're, we're inviting them into the conversation, right? So if they show up, that's, you know, the first kind of step for them to say, yeah, you know, I'm willing to learn more about this. Um, and then just keeping it light enough, right? Where, where you can talk about the difficulty of the mission set and the impact that the crime has, right? Because it's not just about putting perpetrators in jail. It's really about protecting kids and preventing the abuse. And if they're in a cycle of abuse, getting them out of that cycle. And that doesn't really require people to go to that horrible place. Um, but, uh, you know, in the event that people just don't want to hear it anymore, I, I completely get it. And we respect that because, um, I mean, even I have my thresholds there. There are definitely times where in our world, you know, and we tell our all of our agents, hey, if you need to take a break, if you need to leave like right now because you saw something that was so horrible, you can't handle it. Like it's perfectly acceptable in our world now to, to do that. I, I was thinking to ask about how you think the effects of um, the coronavirus pandemic with people being trapped inside their homes, the access to the internet, the unavailability of uh, other means of sexual fulfillment. How do you think that will impact the sort of work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly living in unprecedented times. Um, but I was just talking to some colleagues about this very topic the other day because um, I mean, we do anticipate seeing a spike in cases. So um, we process probably between two and 300 reports a month, uh, what we call cyber tips, where people report um, suspected abuse. And uh, we, we definitely expect those numbers to go up because people are inside, right? And um, for a lot of parents, I know it can be overwhelming, right? <laughs> Being around the entire family all the time. And, you know, sometimes um, as parents, we rely on tablets and laptops and TVs and video games to um, babysit our kids, right? Which um, it is what it is. It's fine. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, if it has an internet connection, then the pedophiles are going to be on there too. And so um, uh, it, it is, I don't know, I, I guess we'll see what happens with it, but I would definitely you know, right now I'm trying to kind of put the word out to parents that um, they should be monitoring screen time if they can, or at least having really healthy communications with their kids about what appropriate boundaries look like um, with screen time. Um, I mean, I, even back in my days with all the AOL, AOL is, is how I grew up with old dial-up sound. Um, and even I was getting hit up for, you know, potential child sex abuse crimes um, 
And I'm astounded, honestly, at how much more child sex abuse there is online now as compared to even 10 years ago when I first started investigating these crimes. Um, but really, it's communication is the best way that parents can safeguard their kids, um, letting them know that they're there for them no matter what, or at least letting them know like, hey, I know sometimes it can be stressful for you to tell me something that's scary, but you know, if you don't feel comfortable with me, is there another adult that you can talk to that you can feel comfortable, comfortable communicating that with, right? So um, whether it's an aunt or an uncle or a teacher or somebody like that, um, just so long as the child knows that they have someone that they can talk to. And then honestly, just showing your kids that you love them really goes a long way with preventing these types of, of crimes from happening and whatnot. So, so yeah, so it's, we'll see what happens after coronavirus, you know, settles down and the number of tips that we're getting and stuff, but yeah, it's kind of crazy. Let's, let's dive into it a little bit. If, if you don't mind, Alani, I, I would love it if you could help me navigate this issue. And because of course it's not, uh, there are multiple, um, categories of online sex abuse it's not all the same thing uh, there are different sort of grades in some respect and uh, I wondered whether you might be able to help um, identify one from another for example the issue of of uh, sextortion is a term that's used in some cases and then there's a the child exploitation um, and child abuse that, that falls under another category from that would you be able to very very um in very basic terms, try and identify the types of online uh, offending that takes place. Yeah, definitely, because it is a really broad umbrella. Um, so basically, uh, kind of the most basic type of crime that we investigate is technology-facilitated child sex assault or rape, right? So um, it's no longer really about the, the creepy-looking van that abducts your child. Um, a lot of suspects are engaging with your child while they're, you know, in the safety of your home and convincing the kids to walk out the front door and meet them. And then, um, the abuse starts. Um, so, so that's kind of the main form of, of crime that we're investigating. Um, we also investigate, uh, child sex exploitation material, which historically has been called child pornography, but they've changed the terminology so that, um, it's it really reflects more what the crime is, right? Because um, regular adult pornography is legal and all that stuff. So it kind of gives the insinuation that child pornography is somehow tied to that legal mm. um, element, but it's not. So, um, but that's, you know, I, uh, creating, distributing, possessing uh, child ex uh, exploitation material, whether it's photos or video, that kind of thing. Um, and then we have uh, commercial sexual exploitation of children, which historically has been called child sex trafficking, right? So that's um, uh, exchanging an item of monetary value in exchange for sex with a child. So it doesn't have to be actual money. It doesn't have to be pounds or dollars or anything like that. It's literally anything of value. Um, it also encompasses uh, survival sex for kids, right? So um, if a child is homeless, uh, a lot of times people will convince them, hey, have sex with me in exchange for food or lodging. Um, so uh, uh, necessity, frankly, that the child needs. Um, and then we have what you touched on earlier, which is sextortion, which is the idea that um, usually a suspect will potentially either um, obtain an image of a, a minor that might not be so savory, right? Um, whether that child gives it to that person or not. So, so a lot of times a suspect will be talking and say, hey, send me a picture of your midriff or, you know, something like that. And once the suspect has that photo in their possession, then they'll flip it on the child and say, if you don't send me more pictures, I'm going to send this photo to everybody you know at school and your whole family. Um, and so it starts this cycle of abuse where um, the child feels like they're beholden to this person and has to do their every command. Um, and a lot of times it doesn't have to necessarily be an adult that's, um, or a perceived adult, we'll call it, that's abusing the child. A lot of times these guys will pretend to be minors themselves, right? So they'll pose as a 12 year old girl online. Um, and we just had a case recently on this where they 
uh, went into a gay female um, forum and were eliciting photos that way and starting the sextortion abuse of other minors. So, um, so basically anything, so when we say technology facilitated, um, it means any use of technology to perpetuate a sexual crime against children. And so, you know, of course, everybody has a cell phone these days. And so uh, inherently, almost any crime involving child sex abuse, we would investigate. What, what have you, what have been your key learnings from your time investigating this, this crime type? Um, I mean, we already knew this, but it was just reinforced that this crime is so pervasive and it still blows my mind that it's not discussed more in public. Um, it's estimated that one in four children are sexually abused, which um, ends up turning into a whole lot of, um, you know, really hurt adults that are trying to cope the rest of their lives with this abuse that happened to them at the hands of somebody that should have protected them. Um, I think too, one of the newer things I've learned in the last few years is just how quickly the technology is evolving. I mean, it's just exponential. And so one of the things that I try to communicate to um, people that engage with us that aren't cops is we know that the technology stresses you out, right? Because a lot of times your kid knows the app better than you do, but it stresses us out too, because there's a new app every day and there's just different ways of hiding the crime. Um, in fact, we have these um, private forums of law enforcement officers where, I mean, I'll average probably 20 to 25 emails a day from cops all over the world saying, does anybody have a search warrant template for this app? Or does anybody know how this technology works? Because I've never experienced this before. Um, and so for the parents, I tell them, you know, I work these crimes every day and it stresses me out. So I can only imagine how you're feeling. And so I say that to help them feel a little bit better, right, about the fact that it's uncomfortable dealing with the technology, but at the same time, you can still learn it, right? And you can still underst understand and apply basic principles on how to protect your kids, which really has nothing to do with the technology, um, but more, again, that open communication with your child, showing them that you love them, right? Setting those healthy boundaries. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that's probably the biggest thing. How do you think uh, we can police something like this with, with the challenges that you briefly described in regard to that constantly evolving technology? How do, it's not like traditional policing, right? There's, I mean, I'm sure there is training and frequently updated manuals of investigation, but it must be a really significant challenge on law enforcement to systematically tackle this and, and do a, do a comprehensive job of it because my, my guess, Alani, with that would be, and I hope it's not the case, but my expectation would be that we sort of, we get the low hanging fruit or we, we touch the tip of the iceberg, but there's so much going on that is unpoliced. What, what do you think? Yeah, yeah uh, that is a really good point. But, you know, we do get a lot of low hanging fruit, but I've also been so encouraged at how people are using technology to fight the crime. So there's just been this whole group of new companies that have come out with this incredible technology and it's cloud-based and just, I mean, I'm not a, a, a tech person, right? But the way they design these programs, when we get the demos, I'm just so blown away and wish I could have had a tool like that, you know, 10 years ago when I was even working drug crimes, for example. So um, the technology is really sophisticated and in a lot of cases it's automated. So, um, you know, for us, traditional police work, it takes weeks or months really to work a case. But um, the good news is that because digital footprints are so unique, right? So like a digital image has kind of like its own fingerprint um, where the evidence that we seize in, for example, a child uh, sexual exploitation material case, right? So that child pornography, um, it's so lock solid. It's better than human DNA, 
in court, right? Like the number of zeros that the experts put after the one, as far as the probability of this image having been in the possession of the suspect, um, that it is confirmed uh, sex abuse material, that there was an actual child in that photo um, is really incredible. And so I say that to encourage people um, because there are a lot of really incredible humans out there that see the problem and are applying their expertise and creating these programs to help us combat that. Um, but technology on the flip side, you know, sometimes the bottom line of some companies gets in the way too, right? So for example, end-to-end um, -end encryption, I don't know if you've heard about this topic, but that's kind of been the big one, right? So this idea of a lot of tech companies are saying, hey, we're going to start applying end-to-end -end encryption to our systems. And so not even the company will be privy to the private communications between two or more people. Um, and so basically when that happens, if a crime occurs, there's no mechanism for law enforcement to get a, you know, an order from a judge to compel the company to provide that material because the company will say, we can't. There is, you know, we can't even access that because of the end-to-end -end encryption. And so um, that's something that we are fighting at a, you know, government level with the laws and, and stuff like that because uh, the companies want to explain to their shareholders, we value your privacy, right? But privacy should never be valued over um, someone's uh, civil liberties. Yeah, as far as like the protection over, you know, uh, not being abused and stuff like that. And so it's a double-edged sword for sure. Um, but, you know, it, it's just that give and take of whenever we come up with a good tool, the bad guys come up with a different one and, you know, it's just constantly evolving, so. I think the, the one of the challenges is making the offenders feel that they don't exist in a place that they can operate with impunity, right? So exactly. it's the same. You look back at any um, sort of historical famous, the way, the, you know, the FBI took on the mob in the old days, whatever. It's it's just showing that actually you don't, uh, you don't exist outside of the law. These are laws you're breaking and we're going to hold you accountable in, in so many different um, versions of that over history. And I think one of the reasons there's such there's such a huge scale of this movement towards online sexual abuse is that sense well i'm in my house i'm safe in my house i've used a vpn i'm safe i'm not going out into the street to try and find an underage person to have sex with i'm doing it from the comfort of my own living room where i'm safe and, and no one can get me and that's that's the bit that i find particularly difficult you Definitely. you started something because i know you started something because we've been friends a good while now and um i was you were very kind to, to share with me as you uh, started the the new chapter that you're currently going through in hawaii about your new role over there and something called operation cakey shield would you tell me what you can obviously uh, it's still a it's an ongoing policing operation so there might be elements of it that you can't share but first of all what does that mean and and tell me about this operation I know you're a big part of setting it up yes so um long story short uh so keiki in Hawaiian means child and so um the operation is literally child shield right and it was designed because uh, when I first came over to our state attorney general's office, it was just me and my boss. And, you know, we were covering the entire state as far as um, uh, investigating these types of crimes. And, you know, with just two of us, there's no way we're going to be able to take care of all of it. And so um, we started meeting with our counterpart law enforcement agencies and found that everybody knew this was a massive issue um, that hadn't been tackled, but everybody was under-resourced, right? I mean, just worldwide, law enforcement just lacks people and money um, to, to combat crimes, right? And so um, we figured out that if everybody was able to give a little bit that, you know, hopefully we could multiply success across the board and everybody could get the wins that they wanted and feel really good about ramping up efforts to protect kids. I was also really surprised when we moved here to see kind of the state of what child protection looked like. So, um, Hawaii, you know, is this beautiful paradise and it is a really amazing place to live. And I'm so, so grateful to live here, but it's kind of like a 
developing countries still in a lot of ways when it comes to child protection. So they only made um, child prostitution illegal in 2016 here, which just blows my mind. I mean, wow. there's still um, minors in, um, you know, various prison facilities um, for being exploited, basically. Um, and so that's something that we're trying to work on with the legislation. But from the law enforcement standpoint, um, there was a lot of public corruption as well. So if you Google the former Honolulu Police Department chief, he um, and his wife, who was like the number two prosecutor on the island, um, were under investigation by the FBI. They were just convicted last year. I mean, massive, massive corruption. Um, it's like a movie. I'm waiting for the movie to come out because it's that bad. Um, but basically, I was shocked, you know, when we started working these cases, how quickly people wanted to meet up, you know, like if you if you do a standard online chat, right, like where you're pretending to be a kid um, to see who wants to try to have sex with you, um, the fastest arrest that we had was 25 minutes. And so that's from the beginning of somebody says hi, right, in the chat, to you've talked about the sexual act, you've agreed to a date, time, and location where this is going to happen. We've had lawyers look at the chats to make sure it's legally sufficient to when the suspect gets in the car and, you know, the handcuffs go on was 25 minutes, which was just so mind-blowing to me. And in that instance, that person posing as a child has stated, I am 14-year-old girl or whatever. Oh, yeah. They, we, we have our guidelines on how we do the chats, but the age is mentioned multiple times. The suspects wow. are given multiple opportunities to walk away. I mean, we don't do the arrest unless prosecution feels like it is a really good case. And uh, I mean, to date, we are almost at 100% conviction rate because um, the chats are so gross. And, you know, even before, 10 years ago when we were working this, um, suspects you know, we're kind of try to vet you out, but now it's just so common um, for this type of crime to happen that they're not even scared to do it, right? Um, they operate with impunity, kind of like you were saying earlier. So, um, so anyway, so it is a, a massive problem, and um, the public knew that law enforcement wasn't doing anything about it. Um, so we put this task force together and started Operation Kiki Shield, which is our, um, what we call enticement operation. So it is that law enforcement officer pretending to be a minor online and just kind of seeing who wants to have sex with them, right? And um, arranging for an arrest at the end of, of that individual operation. And so um, it encompasses all of our law enforcement partners. So we have over 17 law enforcement agencies at the federal, state, local, even the military plays with us um, uh, frequently, which is really incredible. Um, each operation averages between 50 and, you know, a little over 100 law enforcement officers. We have intel analysts, we have support staff. So these are pretty massive operations. And um, to, so we started that about a year ago, and to date we've arrested um, 40 individuals, which, um, you know, to be honest, from a, a supervisory standpoint and all the past operations I worked outside of this, feels like it's a drop in the bucket. I mean, it is a drop in the bucket, but um, we're just trying to rally the system right now to figure out how can we best protect kids, right? And just building on the successes of previous operations. And so um, we just had one on Maui last month, right before coronavirus hit, and we got 10 operations in that one. And Maui has one-tenth the population that Oahu does. And so I'm, I'm kind of nervous and excited to see how our next Oahu-based operation goes now that everybody understands how the operation works and knows their role. Um, but it's been it's been really crazy seeing the results that that we're getting as far as um, you know how quickly, like I said, the suspects are willing to meet. Um, the type of language that they're using with the kids is absolutely disgusting. I mean, we've had um, people talk about um, injuring the child. Um, we we actually have some chatters that pretend to be a parent or an adult selling a child online. Um, and those conversations are very, very egregious. We've had suspects, uh, we had one suspect actually leave his wife who was in labor at the time to meet with the minor. Um, we've had military people, we've had, in fact, um, 
I'd say about 90% of our suspects are non-prior offenders. So these are professionals, they're your neighbor, these are like normal people um, that have been committing these types of crimes. And some of the other results that we've seen, which are kind of shocking, is, um, you know, in some cases we offer the suspect the option of taking a polygraph, right? So a lot of times during the chat, or sorry, during the interview, they will tell us, oh, I've never done this before, right? Like, I'm a good guy, I was just checking on the child, whatever. And we'll say, okay, great, like, thanks so much, prove it to us and take the poly, which is completely voluntary. And in over 90% of the polygraphs, they've disclosed additional child abuse. So um, they've uh, individually disclosed a total of 14 kids to date that were previously abused by these suspects. And so again, it's just it just shows how massive the problem is and how much undetected abuse is happening. Um, and so we've been really grateful for all the law enforcement agencies' participation. And it's fun watching everybody get jazzed about it, right? So we, we have the cameras set up at the time of arrest so everybody can see the arrest as it goes down. And it feels really good to get those handcuffs on that, that bad person. And it can be a woman too, right? We're not just limited to men. It just so happens that men are the majority of the perpetrators. But, um, but yeah, it's been a really incredible response from the partner standpoint. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's great. It's great to hear that level of proactivity and the impact and effect it's having come on team cakey shield yes cakey shield <laughs> love it and one of the members of your team alani as a probably a necessary point of comic relief and levity from that difficult section um has four <laughs> legs would you tell me about that particular yes. teammate of yours Yes. So we have a very special team member. Her name is Canine Lulu. So Lulu is a black Labrador retriever and she functions as an electronic detection canine. So um, what she does is she finds digital media, right? So um, you can store uh, digital photos or videos in a myriad of different types of vessels, right? So SD cards, thumb drives, laptops, cell phones, right? Um, and some of them can be super tiny. So a micro SD card is the size of like your pinky nail, like very small and very easy to conceal, right? So you can buy watches with thumb drives in them. Um, you can, you know, obviously hide something that's small anywhere, really. Um, and so there's a whole, like, bunch of these dogs now in the country that their whole function is to help law enforcement find additional evidence for these child sex abuse cases. And so, you know, for me, before these dogs came out, we would do these search warrants. And my only real stressor was leaving the search warrant scene wondering what evidence did I miss, right? Like I'm a human and I can be thorough at searching, but suspects are just so clever about how they hide things or, you know, sometimes we just miss things. And so these dogs will be deployed after there's kind of an initial search for items. And um, every time we do a search, she'll find an additional probably 20 to 25% more devices than the investigators found without her. And so um, she's also a dual purpose comfort dog for kids. So she knows between 50 and 60 different commands. Um, so she'll be with any children that we identify through the course of our investigations just to be there to support them through the investigative and legal process. And so she'll give them hugs, she'll high five them, um, she'll get remote control if they want to watch TV or something like that. She'll get stuff out of the fridge. I mean, she's she's just such a hoot to work with and um, has been an incredible tool for us in um, engaging with the community too, right? Because of course people love dogs as well. Um, and so, so yeah, she's been absolutely amazing and I'm, I'm very grateful that we have these dogs today, so. And where does Lulu live? Lulu lives with me. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so amazing. So um, she's a food reward dog. So if you, um, if anybody knows anything about Labradors is they're always hungry, right? So she only eats when she finds devices. And so we have to train her every day. So she can't live in a kennel because then she wouldn't get fed on the weekends. But, um, but yeah, she, and you know, we've gotten some really interesting results um, from her that we didn't anticipate. So um, she has her own Instagram account, which we actually set up. What's um, that? Well, you've got to give us that. Yeah, it's K9, like letter K number nine dot Lulu, L-U-L-U. Um, and I initially set it up because we wanted a platform to teach people about online safety, right? And because you, you so astutely mentioned, it's such a, a weird topic for people to hear about, right? They're not comfortable with it. And so having some cute dog pictures in between online safety tips is really helpful in keeping the engagement up. But, um, but I've been really surprised at the number of people that have reached out on Lulu's um, you know, DMs or like the private messages on Instagram. Um, but people DM Lulu pretty frequently talking about their own trauma and their own abuse. Um, and so a lot of times when we do uh, public engagement, we tell folks, especially the kids, you know, find your trusted adult. But, you know, there are a lot of kids that don't have loving people in their lives. And so we tell them, if you don't have anybody, you can talk to Lulu. And we do actually have kids that message and we'll tell Lulu about the abuse. And then we give, you know, we'll follow up, obviously, with an investigation or whatever. But um, but yeah, so she's been such a joy and just so helpful in our fight to end child abuse here in Hawaii. So that is so cool. I love it. Yeah, she's amazing. Alani, we're we're coming into land now, and I've got a couple more questions for you. So, listen, imagine I'm a counsellor. Um, don't reveal too much, but what makes you angry about the world? And I'm going to move on to the positives, but before we do, get this off your chest. Oh, right now I am hating this whole toilet paper mess. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are getting this in the UK, but with the coronavirus stuff, people are just hoarding supplies. And it's just so infuriating because we need to share. Like we're in the middle of some crazy times and we should all support each other. So just share your dang toilet paper, people. Oh, well, that's good. I'm glad you went to a, a deep and personal place in revealing that. It's funny. I I'm I think we've gone through that in the UK. We started like that. I actually live on top of a supermarket and the shelves were just bare as of the very first few days of these announcements and the talking about closing, you know, working from home, closing down shops and everyone went crazy, did the toilet paper thing, cleared the shelves of bread, which is always a bit weird because, well, how long does bread last? Even if you freeze it. Um so it was just uh it was we did that but i have to say um i've seen a bit of a movement in our country that we seem to be at the moment moving past that and really drawing together as a as a community there's a bit of a world war um so that sort of reflection on the community spirit we're going through something together let's all sort of pull together and i'm encouraged in a way so i'm hoping I'm hoping that lasts, you know, I, my original prediction was, well, you wait, you wait until this turns into, like you say, rioting, looting shops, like huge rebellion, insurrection, but it hasn't. And I'm, I'm quite, I'm surprised and impressed. Come on, the UK, maybe, um, yes. I don't know whether it's the same in the US, but I'm surprised at uh, how we're responding so far. Well, you guys are just buying guns, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. Gun fanatics us Americans. <laughs> what makes you happy about the world, Alani? What gives you hope? I really love humanity just at its core. People are so loving and so kind. And I love how unique everybody is. I love how everybody has their little thing that just drives them, right? I mean, even we were talking movies earlier. Um, when I was younger, movies were just a source of entertainment, but now being a little bit older, right? Like starting to see how, you know, if you really dedicate yourself to your craft of making movies, how it can sway someone into action or really hit a nerve in their heart. And so I just love that everybody has the capacity for that. Um, it's just a matter of 
you know, really honoring who they are and, and just doing the thing that they were created to do. So. And your hope for us, what's your hope for us? My hope for us is that we just be a little bit more um, vulnerable and courageous in how we choose to live our lives every day. Um, you know, there's so many times that the world tells us that we need to be a certain way, but um, there's no one size fits all for everybody. And so my hope for everybody is just that whoever you are deep at your core, that you just be that person um, with no shame. And, you know, I think you'll be surprised at what a massive impact you have on the world. So you, you will probably understand that Alani has another business of all the many strings on her bow. She also uh, is a personal coach and I am one of her uh, most ebullient um, clients who would would, would certainly be uh, the first to, to stand up and talk about the powerful impact my time talking to you has been on the formation of Blue Bear and this podcast and so many other things about my life. So I would love just before we end you just to um well first of all let me thank you um i, I always will always uh, put a huge amount down um of what we've achieved down to you uh, but also like i'd love you just to uh, introduce us uh, at the end of this podcast to this other element of your character which is personal coaching like why do you do that and how does it bring you joy yeah thanks so much it's you know really been an incredible honor to watch your journey with Blue Bear. Um, it's been absolutely amazing to watch you create something out of nothing and not only something, but an entity that cares so much for humanity and and loves on other people through coffee, right? I mean, I love coffee, who doesn't love coffee? Um, but yeah, so I am a personal coach. Uh, I have Mighty Sparrow Coaching is the name of my business. And I basically created it because when I was younger, just starting out my career, I suffered so much from imposter syndrome and fear. And again, like what I just mentioned, um, you know, the world tells you how you're supposed to be, right? And so at the time, I was and still am a petite female, um, working in a very male dominated world. And I felt like I had to fit a certain mold and be a certain way and be tough and like not do those, you know, feminine things and, and stuff like that to gain the respect. Um, but what I did was I wasted a lot of time and energy worrying about things I didn't need to worry about. And so, um, you know, through my experiences with bodyguarding and with terrorist hunting and just this crazy career that I've been on, I realized that my, my exterior appearance, um, wasn't a weakness. It was actually a strength. So um, in, in close protection, it was actually a major advantage because people didn't know I was the bodyguard, right? And so I always had the element of surprise working on my side. And um, thankfully, we never had any issues with my protectee. But, um, but yeah, and so as a result of that, I, I really um, have kind of also dedicated my life to making sure that nobody experiences the fear and the imposter syndrome that I did. Um, because it's just such a waste of your, your time and energy. And so, you know, that's why I was saying, if you, if you really understand who you are at your core and you just live that life out with no apologies, um, you'll just achieve so much more than you ever could have imagined. So, so yeah, you, you have inherent value. You are powerful beyond what you know, which I know sounds so cliche, but it's so, so true. Um, so, so yeah, thanks so much for the plug, Brent. I really appreciate it. Not at all. And uh, I mean, there's a whole other podcast there. We could have done a whole <laughs> thing on positive thinking. Alani, yeah. thank you so much for giving me some time of your morning. It's Good Friday. Is it Good Friday there as well? I presume it's so. Good Friday, yes. Have an amazing Easter, the best possible as you can from the confines of your property, of course. Yes, thank you so much, Bren. And thank you. good luck with Blue Bear. We look forward to seeing the new heights that it reaches. So there you have it. Isn't Alani one of the coolest people you've met? If hearing her talk to me on a podcast counts for meeting, which of course it doesn't. She is a badass though, isn't she? There really is no other way of describing her. Don't you want her as your life coach? I have had many honest conversations with Alani over the years, and I can certainly vouch for her authenticity. She is exactly as she presents. Working in the field that she does is really tough. I don't think you'll need any persuading of that fact. And the temptation to drop all and about turn 
is always there. But Alani, her colleagues and the many good people around the world that investigate this particularly egregious and reprehensible crime type are owed our greatest respect and gratitude. Wouldn't you agree? We covered a bit, didn't we, on the podcast, these very singular set of circumstances we're currently going through on a global lockdown, heavily reliant on the internet for everything, is likely to lead to an increased level of online sexual abuse of adults and children. We need to support organisations, governmental and non-governmental, who are working in this area to remove that sense of impunity that allows for this activity to exist and indeed grow. My takeaway from talking with Alani is her repeated encouragement to parents who may be fearful at the prospect of their children being targeted online to do all that's possible to continue having honest, open, regular conversations with your children about their experiences online. I also thought that it was great to hear about the collaborative efforts of multiple facets of state and national law enforcement coming together to conduct Operation Keiki Shield in Hawaii, working in partnership sometimes across traditional jurisdictional boundaries. Working in partnership is so key. Finally, I hope you are encouraged by the power of the individual response. When Alani first moved to Hawaii, she was key to birthing a project that had no predecessor. And now Operation Keiki Shield and their continued casework is protecting an ever-growing number of children. Now, yes, Alani has a very unique skill set, but the point is a larger one. What began with her and her boss has led to operations with hundreds of law enforcement colleagues being mobilised around the world. You may not always know the impact of your response, but there will undoubtedly be one. So don't think that any issue is too big for you to influence. Thankfully, the world just doesn't work that way. I'm getting well outside of my area of authority, if I even have one. So I'll try to contain myself and finish this podcast with a thank you to you, the good listener, for tuning in. And of course, a big thank you to Alani for coming on and speaking with us and being so candid. If, like me, you want to follow Lulu, the crime-fighting canine, on Instagram, the title of the account to follow is canine.lulu. And you might want to find out more about Alani's life coaching business. You can do so at mightysparrowcoaching.com. That is all for this week. Thanks for listening in. Peace.